So the first lesson today, those are the kind of sermons I really enjoy preaching. I, I love talking about what God expects of us and uh, to, to think about the motivation from the scriptures to be what he wants us to be. The next two lessons are not quite as pleasant for me to, to want to talk about, but I think they are extremely important to discuss when it comes to fellowship. And I am acutely aware that you may not agree with me about everything. And that's okay. You don't have to agree with me about anything. What we want to do is agree with God. And so if you disagree, I'm going to say some things that I believe are in the scriptures and I think are, are principles and applications that ought to be made. Not all brethren agree with me about that. I'm not trying to set us up for an argument, but I'm trying to be open about it. And to say that one of the things that I think is key to fellowship in a congregation is communication. That, that we need to be willing to talk about our differences and, and be open and, 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 and to listen to our differences and to be humble about that. We'll talk somewhat about that tomorrow as well in the last lesson. But I want to practice that as we go along. I have the floor, I'll be speaking, but I honestly and, and, and deeply want to impress upon you that if you, see, if you hear something that you disagree with, please, let, let's, let's talk about that and, and let's try to think that through to, together. You might help me come to a better understanding. But these are such important topics. We've got to talk about them uh, as, as brethren. Biblical fellowship has boundaries, and uh, we need to live within those boundaries. We need to see that there are boundaries. It seems as if the world that we are living in today, uh, boundaries are being pushed in, in further and further extremes uh, to, to all sorts of, of situations where it's as if nobody can get along with anybody. There was not too long ago, a few months ago, I guess, a, a conference on the, the idea of, uh, of gender acceptance and of all the different genders that are being uh, proposed today and, and how that needs to, to be taught and, and promoted in, in society. And at one point, somebody had said something that a lot of the group disagreed with, and they booed that person off the stage. Um, uh, in this conference of tolerance. And uh, yeah, we, we see the irony in that. But the guy that came back on stage then to try to calm everything down, he says to the group, guys, guys, we need to calm down. And as soon as he said, guys, guys, <laughs> the place went livid. How dare you use a masculine pronoun or, or description for all of us? You know, that, and you just saw where it, it got to the point where nobody can agree. We're, we're going to, to find ourselves, if we join in those kinds of, of movements of any sort, in, in any direction even, that we'll find ourselves just splintering and splintering apart. What we need to realize is that there are some boundaries. If the boundaries are just my feelings, then eventually I'm going to find myself worshiping in a closet and maybe not even wanting to worship with myself. Uh, we've got to accept the boundaries that God has for us. We talked about John 17 in Jesus' prayer. Beautiful prayer, praying for oneness with 
he and the Father and the apostles and the disciples who would believe on after them, that, that all of his people would be one. And you know the amazing thing about John 17 is that it comes right before John 18. Have you thought about that or not? Probably if you know your numbers, you did. But John 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. The very next text as Jesus has prayed for unity, shows one of his followers that's included, talked about in the prayer in John 17. But just how sad that is, that Jesus is pouring out his heart, praying for unity of his people. And at that very moment, Judas is leading the band of those who are going to betray the Lord. So we pray for unity. But we recognize that there are Judases out there. Hopefully not in here. But out there, there are Judases. And so we have to be aware of them and and think about them in our application to biblical fellowship. Look with me at 2 Corinthians. We're going to spend some time here in 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 11 through 7-1. O Corinthians, we've spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you're restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as the children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I'll be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. As we think about the boundaries of fellowship, this is, I think, just a classic text that we ought to, to have in mind. God has set up boundaries. We cannot just have fellowship with any and everybody. And he gives some uh, relationships here in verses 14 through uh, 14 and 15, 14 through 16, uh, of things that are just incompatible. These things cannot go together. Light and darkness just do not belong together. We see that so clearly. We need to see it in the spiritual realm. Righteousness and lawlessness. Those things, they just won't work together. You think about a government or a police force or an army that is supposed to be doing what is righteous, what is right, but acting with lawlessness. The, the result of that is chaos and, and destruction. They, they can't work together, righteousness and lawlessness. Christ and Belial, uh, there, there's no connection between the, the Lord and Satan. Uh, believer and unbeliever, then, he puts in that same category. 
we need to not we need to understand that we don't have fellowship as believers with unbelievers. That doesn't mean that we go live in a monastery. Think about that for me. Um, uh, but it means that while we have interaction with the world, we're not in fellowship with the world. There's a difference there. Jesus interacted with a lot of people, but he didn't have fellowship with everyone. If they would refuse to come to him, then they were separated. They weren't unified. And so we need to understand that there are limitations to that. And we need to make, and this is where it gets difficult when it comes to fellowship, particularly with thinking about the world, we need to make very practical, personal applications. And, and, and that's not pleasant. I've had to do that. I mentioned in the previous lesson, I wasn't raised in a, in a Christian environment, if you will. I wasn't raised with, with principles that were clearly coming from God. Some of them, yes, but it wasn't based on because God said this, and it certainly wasn't the, the authority that, that was given. And so coming from that background to then coming into a place where I am wanting to submit to the Lord, I have to make some decisions. I have to make some changes. With me at Mark, the second chapter. If you want to hold your place there in 2 Corinthians, we'll come back to that in a moment. But in Mark, the second chapter. Uh, I, as soon as I put that up, I thought that's not right. Mark, the third chapter. Sorry about that. Mark, the third chapter. What has happened is Jesus is teaching this text, the latter half of chapter 3, you have uh, the religious leaders, the scribes, are saying that Jesus is Satan, that he is Beelzebub, come to be connected with, with the devil, that, that he is casting out demons because he is the king of the demons. And Jesus, quoting Abraham Lincoln, says that a house divided against itself cannot stand. Actually, it's the other way around, right? Jesus isn't Satan. The demons aren't obeying him where Jesus is telling them to go do bad things. They are obeying him because he has power over them to stop them from doing horrible things. He's casting out demons. So their logic is flawed, and he points that out to them. But in the midst of that argument, you have his family are coming to him in verse 21 it says, but when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he's out of his mind. And so Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers, their names are given over in Matthew 13, uh, they think, oh, poor Jesus, he, he's done lost it. He's, he's gone crazy. He has delusions of grandeur, and oh, we need to go get a white jacket and, and bring, bring poor Jesus back home. He's, he's really lost his mind. That, that's what they think. And so when we get down to verse 31, they get to where Jesus is. And it says, then his brothers and his mother came. And standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. They don't want to go inside. They want Jesus to come out. I sort of picture, you know, two of his brothers are standing on each side of the doorway, ready to grab him to take him out. I don't know exactly how that's going to unfold. But they think he's crazy, verse 21, and they're going to take him back home. And so in verse 32, a multitude was sitting around, and they said to him, Look, your, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered and said, Who is my mother, my brothers? 
And he looked around in a circle at those who sat around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. I don't know how you make that application. I know how I had to and continue to have to. Before I was a Christian, I ran with a crowd. They were not seeking after godly things. We drank a lot. We did a lot of things that were very wrong. I'm ashamed of. I'm not going to give you the list. When I became a Christian, I gave my life to God. I understood that I cannot continue with them. And when I didn't, they thought I was crazy. The parallels here are, are more than one. Uh, what's wrong with you? Hey, we're all going to bar. Why don't you want to go? That girl might be there. Whatever they would, you know, no, I'm not doing that anymore. Well, why not? Oh, because I'm a Christian. So, so am I, they would say. They just did not understand. And I finally had to break off those relationships. And, and I, I had to understand. These are my mothers and my brothers. The ones who do the will of my father. I have to make that same application and that's tough. I, I had relationships. I, I had friendships for years and years invested in friendships of worldly friendships. That they didn't want to come to the Lord, but I wasn't going to leave the Lord to be with them. As a result, there has to be a separation. There's a boundary there. I crossed over that to be with Christ. I'm not going back. And if I'm not going back and they're not going to join me, then we can't be together. We have to make those hard decisions. And that's really a challenge. And maybe especially for people who have come from a background that their parents were not Christians. But it's not limited to that. Sometimes over the course of our life, we make strong friendships from school or work or other activities. And before we know it, we've really become deeply close with those people. And then they're encouraging us to do things that aren't what God wants us to do. I'm trying to say that carefully. I'm not just talking about immoral things. I'm talking about things that God doesn't want us to be a part of. They may even be good things in the world's eyes. But if they're not things that God has said, then we need to not be a part of those do you remember I, the text that we were in, in Ephesians, in Ephesians, the second chapter, when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is it against God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, he pre, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When somebody says, yeah, but that's a good work. Is it something that God created? That God is saying is a good work or is it something that man or man's religion is saying a good work I think that's really where it's difficult maybe for for Christians to make that I had to make some really tough choices in becoming a Christian but when we are surrounded by some very nice even pleasant often doing very helpful, unselfish things. Many times the things that they're doing are what God has said. But then we 
through study or through conversation, we come to understand that they are not submitting to God. We have to make a break there. And we cannot approve of those things that they think are good works, good deeds, but that God hasn't created them. God hasn't defined them as such. That may be even harder. Sometimes people think, oh, you came from a non-Christian background. That's really hard. In some ways, coming from a Christian background can be equally challenging. And if you came from a, a spiritual background, from some denomination, there's a lot of good things that are going on. It's hard to break that, that connection. But we have to do that if we're going to be submitting to God. We have to look and see who are the ones who are doing the will of God. Also in Mark, the 10th chapter. Mark chapter 10. This is the text of the rich young ruler came to Jesus. What must I do to have eternal life? Has the conversation. The rich man walks away sad. Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are thinking, what? <laughs> if a rich guy can't get in, then how do we stand a chance? If he can't pay the price, then, then you know, I don't have enough. And Jesus makes the point that actually it's the riches that are hindering him. With men it's impossible. With God all things are possible. He says in 27, 28 then says, Peter began to say to him, see, we've left all and followed you. Jesus answered, said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sister, father, mother, wife, children, lands for my sake in the Gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses of brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I don't know your experiences. I don't know where you've been. But, but I can tell you that, that this statement is, is understated. I don't mean that as any sort of criticism of Jesus' words. But what I have seen is not a hundredfold. I've seen at least a thousandfold. I mean, personally, in my life, where, where I gave up relationships of the world. And I've been blessed to, to travel to a lot of countries preaching the gospel. And everywhere I go, I have family. I, I have people who, who open their doors and open the refrigerators and, and, and are just so willing to share. And, and I mean, just flooding through my mind every time I teach this, I get all kinds of names of people in Mozambique and in Portugal and in Brazil and, and, and all over the U.S. And, and it's just so stirring to think about how I, it, it pained me to give up some of those relationships. But exactly what Jesus is saying here is true. It, it, it is borne out. What we gain is a much, much larger family. And I like how he talks about both in Mark 2 and here of, of mothers as well. I can't tell you how many moms I've got. And I'm thankful for them. Not always when they're pulling my ear and trying to correct me. I mean, I've got a lot of, of older women who, who help to, to keep me on track and remind me of how I need to be a better husband and father and, and who give good guidance and and. My children, 
I don't know everybody that they call grandma and grandpa. I mean, it's incredible the, the relationship that we have. That's what God wants. But we can't have this if we're not willing to give up that. We, we can't have both families. And so we, we very much want the hundreds, or in my experience, the thousands of other brothers and sisters and moms. But we've got to make that hard break. We've got to be willing to do that. And that's why I say it has to be a personal and a practical application. And maybe this would just be the, the gut check. What relationship have you given up to have a relationship with God? And I'm not asking anybody to speak out loud. But if you can't name any, that's probably a problem. Just think about that. There, not everybody can we have fellowship with. And so we have to accept those boundaries. Back in 2 Corinthians the sixth chapter. In similar fashion to what Paul had said in Ephesians 2, we are God's temple. And so here he says in verse 16 that we are God's temple. For you are the temple of the living God. Being God's temple, what he intends to do is to hearken the reader's mind to the temple to that structure that Solomon built, that the Jews rebuilt after the captivity, that was being rebuilt as Jesus is, is alive, Herod's reconstruction or renovations. And as we think about being God's temple, we think about the fact that he dwells there. And that's what he says in the very next verse. But think about that temple and some of the activities that took place in that temple in connection with this thought of having to give up and uh, of gaining. Uh, look back, again, hold your place here and look back at Matthew 21. We're going to connect, I hope, this idea of we are God's temple. Look what happened in the, the temple in Matthew 21 and in verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. My house shall be called a house of prayer. That harkens us back to last night. That's Isaiah 56 and verse 7. That's connected with the eunuch, that he's welcome into God's building to be a part of that, that house of prayer. But they've made it a den of thieves is a quote from Jeremiah 7, about verse 11, if I remember. Maybe I got that verse not exactly right. Uh, but where they were perverting the temple in Jeremiah's day. And they're doing the same thing in Jesus' day. So he brings those two verses from Isaiah and Jeremiah together to say that's what's happening here. But in the temple, God doesn't allow everything to go on. They had turned this house of worship into Walmart. They were buying and selling. They were carrying their different things through the temple. Some of those things were even related to worship. 
doves and, and so forth. They would exchange money there. They had money changers because people would come from other lands and had different currencies. And if they were going to pay the temple tax and if they were going to give an offering, they needed to have exchange of money there. So even related to spiritual things, but they turn it into a place of merchandise. When Jesus cleanses the temple at the beginning of his ministry in John, the second chapter, that's what he condemns. Here they've gone even further than that. Not only have they turned it into Walmart, but they're price gouging. They are, they've become a den of thieves. Their weights are dishonest, uh, as one example that the Proverbs would talk a lot about. But they have completely perverted the temple, and Jesus will have nothing of that. In verse 12, he overturned the tables and drove out the money changers and those who bought and sold. Can you imagine that? Uh, this is not original with me, but, but do you remember the, uh, uh, the, the wristbands and the quotes? And I don't think it's a bad thing, but WWJD, what would Jesus do? And, and somebody said, well, one possibility is he'd make a whip of cords and drive people out. You know, usually we think, well, what would Jesus do? Well, he would love people. Uh, he would forgive. Uh, well, he, he might do something a lot more violent to, to some people. What about as God's people? Make that application. We're the temple of God. If we've turned worship, if we've turned the church into a Walmart or into an Amway or into some sort of industry, and I'm not condemning either of those. They have their own place in the world, uh, no better or worse perhaps than, than any others. But if we've turned it into some sort of carnal marketplace of physical focus, then we're going to be just as bad. And I'm going to make an application here that I just encourage you to think about. I've read a lot and talked a lot and have seen uh, the idea of a, of a fellowship hall. Uh, we're talking about fellowship. And so I'm not just like pulling this out just because I want to talk about it. I, I think it's relevant. People talk about a fellowship hall in a, in, a, in a church building and don't have that here. I understand. I want you to think about, is it a fellowship hall? That, that's the phrase that's often used. And I've wondered why is that the phrase that's used? I think it's a phrase of justification for having that. To, to have a place to go and, and to have meals and that sort of thing. But we need to have a spiritual connection with it. We, we need to justify that. And I don't mean that as if they're trying to do that dishonestly. But people that have this concept of a fellowship hall, they're wanting to make that a spiritual engagement. But where do we find that in Scripture? It's a social hall is what it is. It's not a fellowship hall. I heard one brother say that every time he heard the word fellowship, he smelled fried chicken. Because that's what people think about when they think of fellowship. They think of getting together and eating. That's not fellowship. And, and, and if our concept of having fellowship is to gather together and eat. And listen, I'm as much in favor of eating as anybody else. I, I can prove that. Just look at me. We, we need to understand the difference, though. It, it, it's not about getting together to, to eat. That's not the priority. Paul makes that abundantly clear when he condemns the wrong actions of the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Don't turn the Lord's Supper into that. And people say, well, but we're not going to turn the Lord's Supper into that. We're going to have it after the assembly. I'll tell you, I've been a part of those. 
in the past. And I think, my memory is not always perfect, but most of the time that I've been a part of it, and I've asked others who are in favor of it still today, and they will admit that attendance shoots up on potluck Sunday. There's a reason for that. There's an attraction to the carnality of that, to the physical aspect. And so, yes, I think that in some ways it is taking the place of the Lord's Supper. It becomes a priority for some people. It becomes an attraction for people. It's a social, physical attraction. And that pains me. I, I, I mean, the idea just, you know, Joe's wisdom, man, I really like that idea of getting together and, and eating together and just sort of making this all a, a, a commune kind of scene. But we have to submit to God, and there are boundaries. And unless I can find a text that tells me that that's what I ought to be doing, then I need to get rid of Joe's wisdom and just submit to God. That's what submission is all about, right? It's when I think something might be good, but the person in authority has said differently, so I'm, I'm going to do not what I think is good. You know, submission isn't just always doing what I want to do that the authority agrees with. <laughs> that's hardly submission. And so if you have a passage that tells us that that's what we ought to be doing, then by all means. But we need to not confuse and just think about this. I think to me, this is a really large concept, and I would encourage you all to think about this after I'm gone and, and for a while and to, to talk it over from a biblical vantage point. This is just a big topic. That's why I'm saying this. What's the mission of the church? What's the purpose? And is this helping or is this hurting? Do we have authority? That's the first thing. But then, just from a practical vantage point, is this distracting or is this promoting the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? That's the mission of the church. And, and so we have to really think about them. Let's go back to 2 Corinthians, please. This is going to be a little bit tougher. I think we can make the point. I'll try not to get in the way of the scriptures here. 2 Corinthians 6 and uh, in verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. The latter part of that verse is probably coming from Jeremiah 31, 33. Um, Jeremiah 31, I'll make a new covenant with them. You know, that passage, I'll write it on their hearts. Uh, and so that's connected with this. God we, we can't have fellowship with the world if we're going to have this covenant with God. I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Let me pause here. A lot of times what we find in the scriptures are clips of passages in the Old Testament. We, we often find little clips that, that aren't even a full verse. They're just a, a phrase from the Old Testament. And what the author is doing, he is begging us to go back and read the context. I mean, oh, we, we miss so much when, I miss so much when I don't do that. And this would be one of those examples. He just gives this little quote from Jeremiah 31. I'll be their God and they should be my people. Go back and read Jeremiah 31. He's talking about the covenant that we can have with God and how his law is going to be written on our hearts. And it becomes so much more meaningful, this text does, when we know that text. The text right before that in 
2 Corinthians 6, 16, is I will dwell in them and walk among them. That is a quote. If you have your marginal reference, it's probably going to get this one right. I'm thankful for It's a quote from Leviticus, the 26th chapter, uh, which the last time that I was invited here was to talk about Leviticus uh, in 2011. Uh, Enough people have either moved away or forgotten that I got invited back. Leviticus is one of my favorite books to teach. And here's one of the reasons why. People find the value of Leviticus all over the New Testament. They just don't know it's from Leviticus. It's like when, you know, mom hid the green beans and you're like, how was that? And they're like, oh, that was good. There's green beans in it. Really? <laughs> That's the way Leviticus is in the New Testament. It, I, will, I will dwell in them and walk among them. Look at Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 God is talking about the blessings and the cursings. The blessings, if you will obey me, if you'll follow after me, if you'll listen to me. He says in verse 3, walk in my statutes, keep my commandments. Then you'll get all these blessings. And we'll pick up in verse 9. For I will look on you favorably and make you fruitful, multiply you, multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old harvest and clear out the old because of the new. I'll set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I've broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. And so when he says, I will dwell in them and walk among them, I'll be their God and they should be my people. That's a quote from Leviticus 26 verses 11 and 12. He says in in the New King James, I'll set my tabernacle among you. But the word tabernacle is the word dwell, dwelling. It's a dwelling place. And so that quote is there. If we will get away from Belial, lawlessness, um, uh, unbeliever, if we don't have fellowship with that, then God will dwell with us. But notice up in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 6, he says, Do not be unequally yoked together. People, there's a lot of different possibilities, a lot of different ideas of what that means to be unequally yoked. I think the answer is found in Leviticus 26. That was the first passage that he quoted was Leviticus 26, verses 11 and 12. But notice what he says in verse 13. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I have broken the bands of your yoke. In the context, I think it's just, I'm a pretty simple guy. When I see something and it's it just jumps out at me in that way. When he's saying, I will dwell in them, that's if you break the yoke. What's he referring to? What yoke? In Leviticus, God is saying, if you will obey me, we can have fellowship. We can have a covenant. I broke the yoke of Egyptian slavery. That's what he says there. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you to walk upright. The idea is, as they were slaves, they had, perhaps figuratively, like oxen, a, a yoke, a burden on their back. And so they were, they were bearing down, they, they, were, they were leaning over, they, they were enslaved. And he says, I broke that yoke so that you might walk upright, verse 13. That, 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 that they could walk erect, that, that, that they could, could stand up, that they had been given freedom there. But what they needed to do was to continue walking with God. 
God says, I will dwell in you. I think that's the yoke that he's describing there. Feel free to disagree with me. A lot of people are wrong. Uh, but he says, don't be unequally yoked. The, the law of Moses, God would often say, don't go back to Egypt. I think that's the yoke that he's describing there. Don't go back to bondage. I, you, need to not be unequally yoked. Don't go back. We'll, we'll have relationships. We'll have connections with the world. But don't go back to that world. Whether it's paganism, idolatry, false religion, denominationalism, whatever it is, don't go back to that. God has given you a freedom to stand upright. Don't be burdened with those false doctrines. We need to cleanse ourselves in every manner, chapter 7 and in verse 1. The problem was Leviticus 26 is given at Mount Sinai. The book of Leviticus is given at Mount Sinai. Leviticus 27 verse 34 tells us. And so right after Mount Sinai, as the children of Israel begin their travel to the promised land, it takes them a while to get there, right? One of the things that we see is they leave Mount Sinai in uh, Numbers, the 10th chapter. And as they leave Mount Sinai, they get three days down the road and they begin to complain. Three days down the road and they start complaining. Look over at Numbers 11. I think there's a reason and something that we can connect with all of this. They were dissatisfied. And so in Numbers 11, uh, uh, Numbers 10, 33, so they departed from the mountain of the Lord on the journey of three days, and the Ark of the Covenant went before them. So that's where I'm getting the three days. In verse chapter 11 and in verse 1, now the people complained. When the people complained, it displeased the Lord, for the Lord heard and his anger was aroused. The fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed some of them in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses. Moses prayed to the Lord. The fire was quenched. So he called the place to bear the fire of the Lord that burned it among them. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? See, coming out of the exodus, coming out of Egyptian slavery, it wasn't just the Israelites that did that. All the other people that had been enslaved by the Egyptians, after that 10th plague, the door was open. Anybody who had been a slave could get out. And a lot of other people went with the Jews, went with the Israelites. And that's, they're described as this mixed multitude, non-Israelites who left the Egypt at the same time. They're not concerned. They don't, they're, they're, not, they're not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't care about Yahweh. And so as they're traveling along, they're complaining about the manna and about other things. And what happens with that murmuring is it begins to spread. And so you see that idea in verse 4. The children of Israel also wept again. One of the things by trying to hold on to the world and God at the same time is whatever the world is dissatisfied with, we're going to be tempted to be dissatisfied with. And so we're going to, as the world wants to improve on, on religion, <laughs> then we're going to be tempted to improve, try to improve on religion. And so those things are going to creep in. We, we have to make a, a clear break in that if we want God to dwell with us. Pause here and John's going to lead us in a prayer. Okay.